Jesus, my prayer to you right now is what we sang earlier. Come, thou long expected Jesus, you who were born to set the people in this room free from our fears, from our sins, release us. You've done it before. Would you do it again tonight? Would you let us find our rest in you? Would you show us that this account is the origin of our hope? Uh, This is the pivot point of our story. Um, This is where you interrupt all of the stuff, all of the sadness, all of the chaos that has made our week hard this week, that makes home hard, that makes life hurt. Uh, This is where you began to interrupt all of those things forever. And so tonight, would you uh, help us to love you and adore you as you are? That is our chief desire. And we ask this in your name. Amen. So uh, as Stuart alluded to earlier, we're talking about the Christmas story, the nativity story. And if anything is clear from the nativity story, it's this. Jesus interrupts everything. And when you think about interruptions, think about breaking news. Think about the kind of news that comes across the ticker of the screen that you're watching. Something else, you're, you're watching some other program, some other event is happening. And along the bottom comes this little ticker of breaking news. And they say, uh, we're sorry to interrupt this program, uh, but there's breaking news, and it tells you. And, you. and and you have to begin to see everything you were doing before, everything you were looking at, all the events and news that you were hearing before, now has to be seen through the breaking news coming across the ticker on the bottom. 9-11 is probably the most, uh, the, the quickest memory you'll have uh, of that happening. Something comes across the ticker on the bottom, and immediately everything's different. All of the news, all the stories you are currently tuned into are now different. But more personally, you get the phone call that your mom or dad's pathology report came back and it wasn't good news. Or you get a call that your parents' marriage is falling apart and you're here at school. A ticker comes across the bottom and it changes everything. The breaking news interrupts the way life was. Or, or a good note, the girl or the boy that you love said, I love you back. <laughs> or you got into the program you wanted to get into. You got the internship that's going to unlock the, the future for you and your career path. Good news, a piece of news, a piece of breaking news interrupts the previous storyline. It changes how you view everything else. That's how Matthew wants you and me to hear the Christmas story. And it's, I'm a huge fan of singing Christmas songs year round. I don't think we should just celebrate the incarnation once a year, but I also think it's really helpful to talk about Christmas when it's not Christmas time because our minds are a little bit more tuned in to the message, to the words, to the significance. And when we sing the songs, we listen a little more closely uh, because it's out of context. It's out of the norm. uh, And so we pay a little bit more attention. 
And so, here's the three things we'll talk about uh, over the next few minutes. Um, I may have to get briefer if my voice gives out, but we'll go as, as uh, we'll go for a little bit if it works with me. Um, three points. It's on your outline. Jesus interrupts everything. He interrupts our sadness with his presence. He's called Emmanuel. He interrupts um, our kingdoms, our little kingdoms, the ways we've set up life. He's, he interrupts that with his kingship. He's called King. And he interrupts our sin with his grace. He's called Yeshua, Joshua, which is Hebrew for Jesus. So his three names are basically the point of this sermon. He interrupts our sadness, our little kingdoms, uh, and our sin with his grace. So that's where we're going. Uh, and the first thing is this. He interrupts our sadness uh, with, his, uh, with his hope. Have you ever picked up on all of the sad, chaotic, dark, disappointing, confusing, tangled pieces to this story? When you've read it before, when you've heard it read at you know, Christmas Eve or Hanging of the Greens or whatever you're used to, pretty much everybody knows this story, even, even those who've never been to church before. But have you ever picked up on all of the dark pieces of the story, the sad pieces? Here's a rundown of them in, in case you didn't. Uh, and here's and Matthew, Matthew's drawing attention to this. Uh, because he says in verse 18 that one of the very first things Stuart read, this is the way, um, I don't have it on me right now. He says, this is the way or this is how Jesus' birth happened. That's saying, of all the details I could tell you about this, here's, here's the filter. Here's the, the agenda I have. How he was born. That's what I'm concerned to tell you. Not so much where, not so much when, but How? And so the how details, we've got to pay attention to if we want to know what his point was. Here's the how. Here's the sadness, the dark places that the, Bible, the writers of the Bible never scrub out. They never clean, they never sanitize to make it look pretty. This is what he says. Uh, in, in the space of one chapter, we smell the following. Whiffs of sexual promiscuity. Mary, or married, virgins was a technical term at the time. It's, it's girls of marriable age. Teenage years, 13, 14. So you have this teenage girl and a guy probably a few years older because he's financially able to, uh, to sustain her. And they are together. And Mary at some point has to come to Joseph uh, after he has this dream and say, Hey, I know this isn't the normal way things happen, but this is from the Holy Spirit. And at some point, guess what? Mary with her baby bump has to go back to her hometown and how much do you think her father, her mother, her brothers, her sisters, all of her townspeople who have known her all her life, how much do you think they're going to believe that this is from the Holy Spirit? Probably about as much as your roommate would believe you if you came back pregnant and said, it's from the Holy Spirit. It's a it's total dismissal. And, and, and we know that this is the way people saw it because Jesus is called a bastard later on in the Gospels. People are saying... This, this is the one whose mom, no one knows who the dad was. It was surrounded by scandals, sexual promiscuity. That's the world Jesus is brought, born into. The penalty for which is stoning. So imagine life for Mary and Joseph when they walk back to town. And the only other explanation for what has happened with them is the Holy Spirit planted in me, the Son of God. Try explaining that to your town. What else do we see? We know from the other Gospels they're, they're poor, poverty, probably lower middle class people, not the cream of the crop, not the, uh, not the cr upper crust. Then you have all the confusion and uncertainty for Joseph and Mary. 
All those questions we ask, like, what's God's will for my life? Ooh, imagine how that one changes after this encounter with the angel. All their plans, all their intentions change overnight. They don't get much information about what this new path is going to carry. All they get is, do not fear. For that which is in you is of the Spirit. That's a complex, tough, confusing place to be if you're Mary or Joseph. We would want a little more information. And you can tell that it was confusing and tough for them because the angel has to tell them repeatedly, do not fear. They were fear. They were fearful. They were afraid. They knew what the penalty for this was. They knew how people would interpret this. Do not fear, he says. Then divorce, rumors of divorce. Joseph, trying to be an honorable guy, says, well, I'll just divorce her quietly before we get back to town. Hopefully no one will ever find out we were engaged. Mary's probably hearing this. I'm sure that doesn't bode well for their relationship. Political turmoil. King Herod catches wind of this little king of the Jews and begins to systematically consolidate power to make sure that he will remain the one with absolute authority. And so what does he do? Did you see what happened in Syria about two months ago? Did you see little children shaking from nerve gas? What would the CNN report of this account been? If you have a Bible, you flip over a few verses beyond what we, what we stopped at. Herod orders a genocide of all baby boys under the age of two. These are people barely able to walk, probably just talking. Imagine the CNN footage of that event. Genocide. This is the world Jesus Christ landed into. This is not silent night, holy night, peaceful, tranquil, the stars are out. Uh, This is real life. This is your life. It's my life. Confusion, chaos, fear, political refugees, divorce, poverty, genocide, political gaming to get power. If you read on a little bit longer, the, the backdrop against which the Christmas story happens is weeping. In Ramah or Bethlehem, there is loud weeping and lamentation because of all these children killed. This is the world God lands into. It's not silent night. It's more like the Normandy invasion, a paratrooper landing under heavy fire on those beaches. But the good news is that's our world. And if you've had trouble resonating with the Christmas story in the past, maybe it's sentimental. It's okay for it to be that. But if it's never connected with you, if it's never felt like real life, perhaps it's because we've made a folk tale out of it. As we've deviated from what the Bible actually says, how Jesus was born, Matthew says, is important. And so what's the point of it all? Emmanuel. God with us. God here with us, with you, in the kind of life you live, in the kind of life I just talked about. Is that not where we do life? Can you not resonate with that kind of world that he landed into? So Matthew wants you to know his name is Emmanuel, and Matthew defines Emmanuel and says, God with us. In the mess, for us. And God in the kind of week that you just had. God in the kind of month or the kind of year that you just had. Or if it's a nice, easy year, God in the kind of weeks or months that are ahead for you. That's the kind of world he came into. And so, uh, if, if the Christmas story has just been sentimental and kind of emotional for us in the past, perhaps that's one of the reasons why 
we've never really felt like the Bible is a book that gets us, that understands what life in our skin is like. Maybe we always feel like it's a few steps removed, like, okay, it's a book of principles, or it's a book of, it sounds like it's written for old people, but it doesn't get me. Kind of the way when people who know you well enough to finish your sentences. If you read, if you read your Bible with your eyes closed to the kind of details that the writers are trying to bring to your attention, you'll never, never feel like this is the book that, it's the one book that gets you. This is the one God who gets you, what life is like for you. And so you'll never really listen to him when he says he diagnoses the problem or he pr- presents solutions. You'll never really care because you're like, he doesn't get me. Uh, and so op- we have to open our eyes to these kind of details. Let me go back to what, is it, what's the di- what difference does it make that Jesus is Emmanuel, which literally means God with us? What difference does it make that God is with you? If you break it down into emphasizing the three different words, it, it gets us a little further. God with you. God with you. God with you. Here's what I mean. My sister Annie is um, kind of the chief mom at an orphanage in Nairobi, Kenya. She's a few years younger than me. Uh, but I got an email today. My parents are over there visiting her, and this is why I bring this up. I got an email from, them, from uh, my parents today. Uh, and, and this is what my mom said in the email. She said, Annie's been amazing. She has so much on her plate, but she does it all with excellence. All the kids consider her mama, and she knows the hospital like it's her home because she's been there so much. And if you know my sister, you know that uh, she probably runs the hospital like it's hers because she's been there so much. But here's the question. To those orphans, what does it mean that Annie is with them? What does it mean that Annie is with them? What does it mean that Annie is with them? What does it mean that Annie is with them? Here's what it means that Annie is with them. She's a Westerner, which means she has money and education, which gets them a lot further than they were before she showed up. She has access. She has influence. She can get resources. She can make stuff happen. Little two-year-old orphans can't make stuff happen. So it matters that Annie is with them. What does it mean that she's with them? She's nearby. She's not here in America Skyping with them. She's not sending orders. She's not sending directives. She's there to get them when they cry. She's there to clean them up. She's there to take them to the hospital. She knows when it's time to go to the hospital. She is with them. Now, what does it mean that Annie is with them? She's aware of their needs. She's tuned in to their moans. She can tell different cries which one goes to Caleb, which one goes to Moses, she knows. She's with them. She knows them. And because she knows them, she knows the hospital because they get sick all the time. So what does it mean that God is with us? Same thing. God, with all of his resources, all of his access, all of his power, all of his influence, is with, nearby, attuned to, aware of, engaged with, you. Distinguishing your voice, your prayers from other people's prayers, your needs, your sins, your background, your scars from other people's. Not generic people, but you. God with us. That's what Matthew's drawing out from, from Jesus. This is Jesus coming and meaning that God is with us. And so hear this. For those orphans... In that orphanage, there is something bigger and more powerful than the fact that they're orphans. That's a really awful 
awful thing to not have a mom or a dad. Some of you know a little bit what that's like. It's a horrible thing. We would think that would be the billboard above their life for the rest of time, but that's not. What gets the last word in their life right now? That they're at an orphanage where they have a mom again. And so Annie with them gets the bigger say now, not the fact that they're orphans. And same with you. God with you, Emmanuel, gets a bigger say in your life than the sexual abuse you've had, than the sexual abuse you've given, than the abortion you or someone you know had or you counseled them to get. Jesus gets a bigger say over that now. He gets a bigger say over whatever, whatever way your sexual temptations are bent, whatever gender they go to, do they get the bigger billboard or does Jesus get the bigger billboard if you're in him? That's what kind of stuff the Christmas story is about. Matthew doesn't let us get away with sentimental stories here. He's driving it down to the nitty-gritty, dark corners of our hearts and our lives. And so Jesus interrupts our stories with hope. There is a, uh, there's a point in Lord of the Rings where Sam asks Gandalf, Gandalf, is it true that everything sad in the world is coming untrue? Is it true that everything sad in the world is coming untrue? Matthew would point to this passage and say to, to us, yes, everything in the world's sad is coming untrue because Jesus is with us. Everything sad is coming untrue. You could say that's, I mean, we could have named the sermon series that. That is God's story, making everything sad come untrue in Jesus If you're connected to him, everything's sad and your story comes untrue in him. That's the first point. The second point's connected to it. Because it's not just any Jesus that comes to be with us. But the passage also says, this one who is born king of the Jews. So he's not just Emmanuel, God with us. He's also king. But we have to say what kind of king. Because there's another king in this passage, right? His name is Herod. And Herod is a lot more akin to the kind of leaders we know, right? Herod is like the president of Syria. When people get in your way, you kill them. Or you effectively kill them. You silence them. You take away their power, their voice, their resources. You leverage all that you have to get what you want. That's the kings we're used to. Is Jesus this kind of king? We've talked about this in the past few weeks a lot. So I won't, I won't go back there to talk about this. But we'll say in chapter 2, verse 6, which is one of the last verses in your outline, Jesus is called a shepherd king. God looks at him and says, this is the one who will shepherd my people, Israel. This is the one who will lead and shepherd my people. All the way up till now. What do shepherds do? They protect. They guide. They lead sheep to good places, to prosperous places. They don't lead by popular vote. They lead by where the sheep need to go. But though he's a shepherd, he's also a king. And this presents difficulties for us because we, we, we posture ourselves as kings, kind of like Herod. Did you hear all the chaos that Stuart read about when he read the passage? Did you hear all the chaos? Did you hear the political bickering, the back and forth? Jesus doesn't, here's why the chaos was there. He doesn't come into the world and fit himself politely into the way the world was before. If he did, everything we've said about him and about the gospel wouldn't come true. He's a king. And when a king comes in the room, the room organizes itself around the king. 
If President Obama walks in the room, you don't wait for him to come to you. You organize yourself, you make a path, and he comes down. When a king comes to his earth, the earth organizes around him. He doesn't sit at the sidelines waiting to be told where to go or what to do or who to bow to. And Herod knows this. And so Herod says, all the little boys die because I will not have a competitor running around like that. But you have other people in this account, not just Herod, not just all who are in Jerusalem, all the other people threatened by Jesus' power, all the other people threatened by his agenda. Because, I don't know, because they wanted glory, they wanted fame, they wanted power, they wanted comfort. Life worked. And if this one, if this king comes, life working for me, the way I've set it up, is threatened. But there's other people. There's Mary and there's Joseph. They don't know terribly much about what's going on. Again, the angel didn't tell them as much as we would like to know, right? All they got was do not fear. All they got was what is in you is of the Holy Spirit. But they trust God. They yield to him. How? Not out of a vacuum. They knew enough about this God to know that though I have no idea where he's taking me, I know he is taking me, and I will go. And it helped that an angel is there in God's mercy to help them believe. Uh, But Mary and Joseph lay down little kingdoms they had. I don't know what kind of life they had planned out together. I don't know what kind of town they were going to go live in. I don't know what job they were going to have. But all of that changed immediately, just the way it did with Herod. But Mary and Joseph aren't looking for escape routes. They're yielding. They longed for God's story to invade their story. Herod feared God's story messing with his story. Why the difference? Because if Mary and Joseph knew their Bibles well, and they did because the the passages present them as these kind of people, they knew that they had a really big barrier between life forever with God, the way it was always meant to be, and where they were now. They knew that they were up a creek without a paddle. They knew that God had always promised, I'm sending someone to rescue you. I'm sending someone to rescue you. Genesis 3, from the very beginning, God always said, I'm going to rescue you. And they connected the dots of God's story, and it invaded their story. And they said, I want in on this. So a very big difference. Herod and all of Jerusalem, pretty much the whole city, versus Mary and Joseph and the wise men. God was, God's story was a threat to some. It was welcomed uh, to the others. And here's the point. Here's the connection point. If you haven't already begun to resonate with what's going on with your own life, here's the point of it. If you know how stuck you are, if you know how up the creek without a paddle, how much of a mess we've gotten ourselves into with our decisions, with our pursuit of life, then Jesus, as a king, will be sweet music in your ears. He will be welcome news to you, even with all the inconvenience he causes, even with all the readjustment you will have to do. Have to do. Things like, take up your cross and follow me. Things like, if you love your family more than me, you have no place in the kingdom. Saying, follow me, leave behind these precious things. That's what he's saying. If you know how stuck you are, how up a creek without a paddle, Jesus is a welcome gift to you. He's a sweet music in your ears. If, however... Your primary agenda is anything else under the sun. Influence, people-pleasing, 
power just wanting to be an intellectual that knows everything or a theologian that knows everything. Wanting to be an adventure person who can always put on Facebook, I went to this state, I went to this state, I went to this country. If, if that's your primary agenda, Jesus will always be a threat to you. No, you won't order people or murdered to extinguish the threat. We're a lot more polite about it. But we will find ways to marginalize him. We will find ways to not think about the passages that shake us up a little bit. We will edit him. Anna and I were on a plane a year ago, and Anna was sitting next to a guy that was tearing stuff out of his book, and I was like, what's going on over there? Is this guy off his rocker? And um, Anna was reading some Christian books, so he looked over and started a conversation, and that got us to ask, why are you tearing select pieces out of that book? And he said, oh, it's the Bible. And um, he'd take a page out or take a piece out, crumple it up, stick it in the seat pocket in front of us. said, oh, it's the Bible. Well, how are you deciding what pieces stay in and what pieces don't? Because he was all the way to the Gospels, and there was probably only about 15 pages in it. He said, what, what's your grid for deciding what stays and what doesn't? And without realizing the magnitude of what he said, he's like, well, what I don't like, I leave out. What I like, I keep. He was king. Deeply, deeply threatened by another king. And so everything, everything unsavory, everything that would cause any adjustment at all got ripped out and put in the seat back in front of him. That man's a little more bold with people like me, people like you, people like us. We're too polite to tear things out of the Bible. But we do have ways of getting around them. Um, and I think this passage points us to thinking about those areas as well. But what are the places Jesus' kingship threatens our little kingdoms? What little kingdoms do we have? One of mine's people-pleasing. Not just because I want to be nice to people. I genuinely like people, but another reason I like people-pleasing is because I get what I want. Make people happy. Keep them pleased with you, and they won't ask something hard from you. Well, Jesus' kingship threatens that little kingdom. Because if I'm going to yield to his kingship, something has to change with me. That's what this means is repentance. You heard that word before. Repentance means rearranging your life around God. Fake spirituality means rearranging God around your life. That's what the guy in the plane was doing. Rearranging the living God, Emmanuel, Jesus, around him. Repentance is rearranging our lives around Jesus. And so do we yield to him? Where are the places God is calling us to readjust? To this Jesus who has showed up in our lives. Whether you know him or whether you don't, right this minute he's showing up in your life. Through my words, what do we do with him? Where do we adjust? Now, a quick illustration of this that's, uh, that I think every one of us has a story about. I... Um, I have a lot of friends who are married now, even some who aren't, but part of their story includes not being Christians when they were dating. One or two of them are converted, and they've been in a kind of relationship that isn't what God calls life, isn't what God calls freedom, and they begin to realize it. And I've seen friends, I've seen friends who are couples, uh, two kinds of couples, one couple uh, that immediately... Uh, sacrificially, painfully begins rearranging their relationship around the living God. And I've also seen friends who begin arranging God around their relationship, which gets you into weird territory. All your conversations are how far is too far. And all these weird little rules we make up about this is okay, that's not okay. And that gets called 
Christianity. There's no power in it. Paul says later on in, 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 one of his, in one of his gospels, it has the appearance of godliness, but it has no power at all. So I've seen these two, these two worlds in our lives of if when Jesus, when you encounter him, what is our reaction to his kingship? Do we yield? Do we run? Uh, do we try to expel him uh, some way or another? And so here's the point of point two before we, before we finish up with number three. Jesus causes trauma in our lives. That's okay. When your family persecutes you for what he's doing in your life, Jesus gets that. He knows that. He says it will come. When you fight tooth and nail to the point of bleeding, as it were, against sin struggles you never asked to struggle with, Jesus gets that. He knows that. He looks upon it with mercy. He is with you in that, with you in that. He is God with you in that. That's what it means that he's king and he's a shepherd as well. So the, the last point is this, um, and this will kind of be where, where we end because this is the biggest point of this passage. So Matthew tells us Jesus interrupts our sin with grace because he saves us from our sin. Now we have to do a little bit of defining here because there's a lot of words in here. We hear a lot and we speak a lot, but none of us really know what they mean. One is sin, one is grace, uh, one is salvation. Um, and we'll hit those uh, uh, throughout the next couple of minutes as we wrap up. Matthew tells us Jesus is with us, but for what purpose? Why would Jesus have to come on the scene? Why does he ever show up? If he's just a teacher to give us better techniques of how to get to God, why didn't the scores of the prophets do the trick? Was God incompetent? Did God fumble repeatedly throughout the Old Testament? teaching his people the way to life? <laughs> or if Jesus is just a guide to kind of inspire us and get us up, did the priests, did the prophets, did the kings, did the assembly botch it completely all the time? If that was God's intention? No. Jesus shows up because of the nature of his mission, which Matthew tells us kind of out of the side door. He says, uh, he, he tells us what Jesus is all about, why he comes by virtue of his name. His name is Joshua in Hebrew. If your name is Josh, your name is Jesus. Joshua literally means Yahweh saves. Yahweh saves, or Israel's God saves, so our God saves. That's his whole purpose. It's the gospel in his name. Jesus is the Greek equivalent of Joshua. That's why it appears in the gospels. But do you remember who Joshua was in the Old Testament? If you're familiar with the Bible, Joshua was the one God appointed to deliver his people out of exile and into the presence of God in the promised land. Joshua was the one who took the people out of the hell of wilderness and into the heaven of the promised land. Is it a coincidence that when Jesus shows up, the angel says, you will name him Joshua, for he will deliver my people from their sin." And God immediately orients everyone in the room right now, including me, of our chief problem, of our chief need for deliverance. The exile. Remember when we talked about the fall, how it made us homeless wanderers, exiles who remember what home is like but don't know how to get there? Jesus is the one who comes and gathers his people in and takes us back to home with God forever, into the family of God. 
That's what it means when he says his name is Joshua. And he came to save us from our sin, our running from God. He comes to chase people who run from God. There's another Christmas carol. Um, I talked about Silent Night a minute ago that maybe misses it a little bit, even though that's my favorite Christmas song. There's another one, Oh Holy Night. Celine Dion sings the best rendition of it, by the way. Um, I will go to my grave uh, arguing that point. But this, do you remember the lyrics uh, to Oh Holy Night? Long lay the world in sin and error, pining, longing, till he appeared and the soul felt its worth. A thrill, a thrill of hope. The weary, weary world rejoices for yonder breaks a new and glorious morn. Fall on your knees, readjust your life, organize around him. There is a Christmas song that gets it, that nails it. Who this Jesus is, long. Do you know what it is to be long, weary, pining, longing for rescue, for deliverance? That's what this passage is about. Yahweh saves sinners. And so if you want to approach Jesus, you have to approach him first as a savior, a rescuer, a hero of sinners. You can't come to him as a teacher first. You can't come to him as a moral guide. You can't come to him as a political prop that makes your arguments for why this or that should be enacted in Congress. You can't come to him those ways. He insists you must come to me as a rescuer for sinners like you, like me. You have to approach him that way. It's his name. Yahweh saves sinners. And so the question is, do we approach him that way? Christians too, do you approach Jesus first and foremost as your hero who rescued you? Do your prayers reflect that? Do your conversations with others reflect that? Do your thoughts about God reflect that? Or has he moved on to the point of being just the errand boy for the, for the, the needs we meet? And I'm not saying it's bad to pray for those things, but I'm saying his name shows us who he is and we have to approach him that way. Some of you might say, well, that's just the problem. That's exactly why I don't want to go to Jesus or I don't want him to come to me. You're like Walter White in Breaking Bad, which I've begun to watch, which means there's probably going to be a lot of illustrations coming from there soon. But Walter White seemed to be a, a good kind of guy, uh, a, a high school chemistry teacher. He, he has lung cancer. He's trying to put food on the table for his family. And he accidentally gets into a predicament in the first episode where there are people who want to kill him. He didn't ask for it. He didn't invite him there, but they caught wind of what he was doing and they wanted to come kill him uh, and take this recipe that he had invented for really good methamphetamine. Uh, And Walter White, um, his only escape from there is to murder these two people. And so he does it. And you can see in his eyes from that point forward, this is a man who knows, I cannot believe what I just did. But there's no turning back because his options were turn himself in for killing two people or walk deeper into this lifestyle and embrace it. And many of us do that with Jesus. Something has happened. You've done something. Something's happened to you. And you say, all is lost. 
What's the point? He can't help. He won't help. Not someone like me. And we go, we embrace deeper and deeper the lifestyle that leads to our destruction, that leads to our death, just like Walter White. Jesus says, I come for the Walter Whites, the people who have botched it so bad that there is no other way except for God coming to be with you and to deliver you. The last objection, and we'll close with this illustration, is this. Jesus is a reluctant redeemer. This is the one that is very native to my heart. If you are a Christian, I don't even have to know you. This is native to your heart. We are people who believe that this Jesus is a reluctant rescuer, uh, that he is slow to care, slow to deliver, slow to give grace. It is why we are so afraid. It is why... um, it is why we walk through life on eggshells. It is why we are so angry and frustrated. It's because of this. But if you think like me sometimes, that Jesus is reluctant in redeeming you, someone like you, reread this passage. Does he look reluctant? Was he obligated to do this? Was God with a pitchfork in heaven saying, go, Jesus, go? Or does Philippians 2 said, he went willingly. He made himself nothing. He humbled himself. He did not count equality with God, something to cling to with white knuckles, but he made himself nothing to come rescue. On his own initiative, making the first move, that is not reluctance. If there's a reluctant party in this relationship, we can safely assume it's always us. Um, And God loves reluctant people too and will give grace for us to turn. One last point because we toss around a word called grace that none of us terribly know what it means. It's become so standard and used. We hear the word, we immediately stick it on some shelf in our minds that we've cut out for it without ever processing and feeling what it means. Grace is being treated in a way the opposite of what you deserve. Grace is when someone else who owes you nothing makes the first move, though you have given them every cause to run. And they make the first move towards you. Yeah, grace is being treated the exact opposite of what we get. Grace is when the other person takes the hit so that you don't. That's grace. And here's a story that illustrates it. If you were on Fall Carments, this illustration was attempted to be used. um, But the video didn't work, so I'm going to use it. Um, If you've seen the movie uh, Les Mis, and and my preference is for the the Liam Neeson version, um, not the musical, because I think it captures this scene a little bit better. But this is what grace is. If you're familiar with the story, Jean Valjean is a convict. He's been busting rocks for several years for stealing bread. He's released. He's penniless. He's homeless. He's aimless. And on his first night out of prison, he's in a town he's never been in, and he needs a place to sleep and eat. And so he goes around knocking on doors. And the, the, the first house he goes to, an old man comes to the door, happens to be a bishop. And he says, can I have a place to sleep and then, uh, some dinner to eat? And they, he and his wife bring Jean Valjean in. They feed him. They give him a place to sleep that night before he goes on his way. Jean Valjean wakes up in the middle of the night doing what convicts do. He steals all their silver and he sneaks out. But before he gets out, the bishop wakes up wondering what the sound is. And Jean Valjean knocks him out cold uh, with one of the pieces of silver and leaves the bishop lying bloody on the floor and he runs away. 
The very next morning, these French troops have found Jean Valjean and they bring him back to the bishop's door and they say, "Uh, Bishop, we found this man with your possessions this morning. What would you have us do with him? And the bishop looks at Jean Valjean uh, and says, why did you leave in such a hurry? He says to the soldiers, of course I gave him this stuff. But he left in such a hurry, he forgot to get the candlesticks, which are the most valuable thing in my house. And He sends his wife to go get them. And Jean Valjean, with piercing, stern eyes, looks dead into Jean Valjean's eyes. Or the bishop looks dead into Jean Valjean's confused, shocked eyes. And he says this, Jean Valjean, don't you ever forget this. With this silver, I bought your soul. You no longer belong to evil, but to God. I have ransomed you from fear and hatred, and I give you back to God. That was the interruption in Jean Valjean's life that the rest of the movie or the rest of the musical records. There was a turning point there. Treated the opposite of what he deserved, even in light of all the evidence. Someone else made the first move towards him. Someone poured grace on him when all he deserved was jail. It's an interruption that leads to life, which is what this passage is about. Matthew would point to this passage, the Christmas story, and say, Jesus interrupts everything. And it's for the better of those who come to the one whose name is Yahweh. God saves sinners. You are not too much for him to handle. His grace is more than a match for our record. Let's pray that he would give us grace to believe that. Lord Jesus, we do thank you that you are who you say you are. And therefore, the good news is true. The news we all desperately want to be true and hope is true is actually true. And so even in the midst of the kind of chaos that's going on in our lives right now, just like the kind of chaos that was going on when you landed here with us, um, we pray that we would see you as you are in the midst of all of those things that were going on that swirl around us that make life hurt. We would see you as the one who has come for us to be with us, the one who is for us. We ask this all in your name and for your sake. Amen.